it's a full-time job, like thinking about how you can prep things for your child and prep other people for your child. Because I think the world is not very aware. I mean, many, many people are aware of neurodiversity and how that plays out in different circumstances, but many people are not, which means that you're preempting with every club that they're going to, with every teacher that they're engaging with. You're trying to say, hey, these are some things that work really, really well. And if if you can enable him in these ways, he'll be fine. Well, it's been a while, hasn't it? <laughs> this third part of my conversation with my friend Nina about neurotypical bias was meant to drop like two weeks ago. But as way leads on to way and life gets in the way, that hasn't happened. But I'm glad to be releasing this now and sharing this final part of our conversation. And in some ways, it seems like Nina becomes the interviewer in this part, but it's been great just to have the opportunity to share a little bit of our journey too and hope it's encouragement to those of you who are parenting neurodiverse kids and I hope those of you who are neurotypical and have no insight into this world and experience at all have learned and gained something. Head to my Instagram page, uh, Clearly Unfiltered Pod. Uh, I posted a reel there a while ago explaining some of the terms that Nina and I use and that I have chosen to use in this episode. Um, that might be helpful for some of you too. Also, I just before we dive into the last part of this interview or conversation, I wanted to highlight that we have bleeped out Nina's boy's name in this episode, so don't get a fright if you hear a strange sound now and again. But we just decided together that in order to protect his anonymity and also his freedom of choice and also because... As a young boy, he's not able to necessarily give consent um, for his name being used. Um, we just decided that it would be more prudent to do that. So when you hear that odd sound now and again, uh, don't be surprised by that. Thanks for listening. I think all parents do this, but there's a particular necessity for parents of neurodiverse kids to be advocates for their children um, in terms of interaction with other other parents you know maybe parents of their friends uh, educators healthcare professionals I, I find I find I'm so much more sort of vocal and verbal about what will make her journey not necessarily easier I don't want to be a lawnmower parent but I, I want her journey to be... How to enable her. Yeah, enable her to be the best she can be in, in a space. You know, so the things you mentioned about routine are also so important for Emily. Like if if things are just slightly different, we have to prepare her for those things. Like if her sister's picking her up from school instead of me, like we need to prep her the day before for that. You can't jump that yeah. on her with a, like a, a text message or whatever, you know, like yeah, they're all of sure. these things. Um, and, and, you know... Uh, I think, you know, in, in your experience, how, how is your role as an advocate for your own neurodiverse child and for other neurodiverse kiddos developed 
because of your experience? <laughs> it's a challenging question because everyone's got their stuff, right? Like everyone's got their stuff and everyone's dealing with lots of stuff. And so I feel like I am currently, it's a fine balance between in a fine, helping people as an advocate, as a parent advocate, helping the people that my child engages with understand how they can best enable an environment for him or make an environment enabling for him. I have not yet reached beyond those close touch points. So I will advocate for him with his teachers. I will advocate for him with family members. I will advocate for him very gently with parents of children that he engages with. Um, but because people have their stuff going on, I feel like it's, especially in the UK where there's, I think socially, there's a lot more nuance in the way that you engage with people. With his friends' parents, I will usually not say anything until it's necessary, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so he was at a party the other day, which was, a, it was a very, it was, it was basically the new version. I'm, I'm so out of touch. Basically, I'm feeling very old. The new version of paintball is now called Nerf Guns, which I was like, oh, okay. And it was like, it was a, it was a dark room with like Lumo colors everywhere, loud music and kids shooting little like foam things at each other. And I was like, ooh, this might be a bit much. This amazing parent said, had brought the older brother along and she'd said, hey, could you keep an eye on him? And I was just like, how incredible that this parent had done that because that's exactly the kind of thing that I'd hope that that's enabling him and that's helping him. And that meant that when he did get upset and he wasn't able to leave the room, the older brother then came out and was like, hey, but upset, could you come in? Um, and so I feel like for those that are interested and those that have capacity, I'm really happy to have a conversation and engage and say, these are the things that will enable and help him. But equally, I've also found that they're just people who've just got too much on their plates. And so it's just, it's a, it's a bit hard to, nobody's going to be listening to me ranting on about autism or enabling autism if they just don't have the capacity. So it's about, I think it's a fine balance for me in terms of that. In terms of teachers, I, I, I feel like that's the biggest, the biggest hurdle or the stumbling block at the moment. That's not to say that he's, he's had some amazing teachers, but I think that the education system as a whole is not necessarily enabling for neurodiversity, which means that it's a constant, constant communication thing of almost on a daily basis, weekly, definitely engaging with teachers and advocating for him, reminding them of what helps, what doesn't help, inquiring. How yeah. about you? Yeah, so particularly in terms of school, that's been like our hardest journey with them. And she's actually three months into a new school or a new environment, and she's now in a hybrid space, which is a combination of online learning, but on a school campus, but... Um, they're in, they actually call it the hive. So it's a space within a space. So she has the opportunity to feel like she's part of a school, but she has this like safe hub that she can be in that has less people, that has a collection of trusted adults. Like her connection with the trusted adults is really, really important. And and that's not that there must be like five or six trusted adults, but there need to be mm, at least like one. one or two constant people 
in that space. And so she's really happy at the moment. Um, we're busy navigating some academic challenges because she's missed out on so much in, in the last while trying to figure things out. But what we found is, and, and we feel really fortunate to have found this, we found a place that is that is flexible and is willing to adapt to her needs where before there was so much inflexibility in terms of the way classes were run, the way work was expected to be done and handed in that it took so much emotional energy from her just to try and fit into another box that she actually had nothing left for learning <laughs> and you know yeah, put that on yeah. top of some of her other challenges around dyslexia and 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 concentration and other things um and, and so our conclusion was that that's so there are so few schools that and and i don't blame the teachers because i don't think their training yeah is is good enough in in the sense that they're able to recognize these traits in in kids and to be able to highlight yeah. it and to be able to say like hey listen up i think i think something you know particularly in a south african context that's been a challenge um yeah. and right now we're just grateful that m is happy at school again because she's found a place yeah. where she feels like she can be herself and that's that's yeah. important on the weekends i must be honest we still need to give her time to like just hunker down Be. because she's used mm. up her social battery during the week and she just needs, you know, space and time. And I think, you know, that's one of the misconceptions, you know, that I think particularly neurotypical folk in our lives maybe don't understand is we don't expect M to engage with folk anymore if she doesn't have the capacity, you know. So there's that that hidden rule in society where, you know, kids need to be friendly and greet people and others or whatever. And and we've said to Em, like, if you're not in the space and we have we have people around, you can be in your room, you can close the door. You do you. And, and we will explain that to folk. Um, and I think some people don't understand that. They think, you know, that's rude. But I, I have stopped worrying about what other people think about my parenting and my child. And I've centered... I've centered her well-being above above whatever else, yeah. whatever the yeah. other the other expectations expectations are. You know, what would your advice be about understanding how to support neurodiverse individuals? Um, maybe the question is, you know. What advice would you give them to be able to learn more about what it means to embrace um, neurodiversity instead of seeing it as a, you know, I had a close family member who, when we first told her um, about M's diagnosis, it was like the bottom fell out of her world, like it was the worst possible thing. And I had to explain to her, like, we're excited about this. We get to fully embrace who Emily is and for her to understand. Exactly. And she, she gets to know herself. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is a good thing. What would your advice be for, for neurotypical folk? Yeah. Well, I think that, that there's so many misconceptions about what autism is, and I think that that's why we need to be speaking 
quite loudly ourselves, those of us that are in neurodiverse families, um, that about the strengths, like the deep feeling, the, the love. So my boy has an exceptional empathy for other people and for plants, which sounds, the plants bit might sound a bit weird, but since he's been little, he's, he is absolutely, he is completely at peace outdoors or in a forest. Like he's been mushroom foraging since he was like two and a bit. Like his biggest pride and joy is the olive tree that he bought from his pocket money. And I'm like, isn't, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that there's this five-year-old, six-year-old boy who wants to get to know plants and regrow the forests of the world? And I have no doubt he will get there one day. But he has this deep empathy and care for what is right and what is wrong. I think that's an amazing quality to have. He is deeply feeling and deeply cares about his friends. He is, like I said, he's loyal. He's honest. He's got an incredible memory. Like, let's start talking about, he's incredibly creative and he can hyper-focus. I mean, let's talk about hyper-focus. It's incredible. Like how, like some people refer to it as a superpower, but I do think that it's a really incredible quality. And it's just different patterns of work and focus and concentration that, um, I think we need to be speaking about it. And the more we speak about it, and the more normal that becomes, hopefully people will shift that understanding of autism being this disorder versus it just being a different neurotype. Um, in terms of um, other things that I would say is just engaging with autistic people to have an open mind, to suspend judgment, to engage with curiosity. So I feel like there's this just to, to engage with an open mind, just to be like, this is another human being and I think the whole idea of engaging with children and adults, I think we used to be in a space we were, we were quite judgmental in how we engage with different age groups, even. You know, you were engaging with a young child as partial, a partial human being. She'll still get there or he'll still get there. And with old people as oh, a diminished human being. And I think autism as like a, you know, whatever. And so I think that there's this this idea of, engaging with all other beings, human beings, as whole people, whole people with likes, dislikes, who, and respecting them, respecting their perspective and how they engage and what's good and what's not good for them. And so I think if you engage with anyone with curiosity and interest and respect, you're going to have a much better chance of forming a true connection. And I think that's true for autism especially. If you suspend that judgment and you engage as a whole person, respecting perspective, listening, that, that, I would say that's the person-centered approach is really, really important. Um, and then in terms of parents, like other parents, I would just say, if you are interested in autism and in your friend and their autistic children, engage fully. Like, if you are, like, engage fully, those parents will talk. Like they have so much to say. I have so much to say, but I found generally people have too much on their plates and I've found amazing relationships with other parents of neurodiverse kids who are, are walking the same path. It's just sometimes easier to, to, to relate to people who are also 90% of their time is preoccupied with figuring out this path, this journey. And, and then, but then equally, I've loved spending time with people who are not on that path and just still want to connect with me as a human being. So I would say still connect with the parents of people who are neurodiverse without having to chat, but be open, kind of like, you know, like say where, say where you're at. Be, again, and it's just about having honest, 
real relationships because everybody needs like a little downtime and you know I think what you say is so beautiful you know that that whole idea of being curious but also I'm learning more and more like to to step into any space or to lead with kindness you know because I think none of us really know what other people are going through yeah. or what they're facing and so it's so easy you know I just think of that typical example of being in a grocery store and there's a kid having a meltdown <laughs> and it's so easy I think before having an experience of a of a child who was different to parents it was so easy to just think even if it was just in thought like come on get a grip like you know you're clearly a terrible parent you know you your mind would go to those places but i've i've learned in this process to to lead with kindness more and to hold space for where people are at and i think particularly you know my hope for for people who are largely in neurotypical environments that they would not instantly jump to judgment but that they would seek to understand the challenges that others might be facing and to hold space for that difference um and so that difference would become in the end a celebrated difference just like being typical is a celebrated difference. Mm. Mm, 100%. So can I ask one more question? You can. Great. Um, what would you say has been the biggest shift in your perspective since coming to a world in which neurodiversity is closer to home? So I think my shift has been complicated, Nina, in the sense that alongside Emily's diagnosis and starting to understand her in her wholeness as a human being has been my own journey in terms of accepting who I am as a human being and wrestling through 47, 48 years of masking and finally having the opportunity to, or the permission, to become my true self. <laughs> so I think so much of, I feel that so much of my journey, or Emily's journey, is also tied up in my current journey. Um, and and part, of, part of the struggle for me in particular has been to not compare my journey or my understanding of my journey to her journey and to understand that her journey is her her own journey so it's been a really challenging time um in in that respect um the other biggest part of this journey for me has been having to unlearn my own biases um you know things that things that i thought were were easy and had cookie cut cookie cutter answers are are not that simple and there's a nuance to each hu human being's existence that needs to be um yeah celebrated and and cheered on um i have a real desire to to be an advocate for marginalized folk and i think this part of the journey has just enhanced that i think one last question. Mental health. 
so I feel like the biggest the biggest part of um, the biggest worry in a sense that I've had is kind of coming to terms, coming to into adulthood and seeing the journey that my husband's been, husband's been on has been like, how do we enable to have good mental health and engage, like find, find healthy, healthy ways to process, but also healthy self-esteem, healthy coping mechanisms. Like how, how has that been for you in your journey and Emily's journey like, how as a parent are you enabling that for a preteen, a young teen? Because you're further ahead than we are. So, I mean, we're still in like the young, young years, but I imagine that that changes into teen, like, you know, almost teenager. So I think there are a couple of things here for us and I'm by no means an expert. So this is just my anecdotal experience. Yeah, yeah. So if I think of my own journey and what I'm unpacking in therapy at the moment, I think the the biggest thing that would have helped my mental health and well-being growing up was was to have the freedom to to not live two distinct lives so uh, the growing up and even into my 30s and 40s i there was one bruce and often very often the Bruce that people out there saw was different. And particularly as a child, the Bruce my parents knew and saw was distinctly different to who I actually was. And I, and through no fault of theirs, I, I don't blame them, but I wasn't able to fully be who I was. And, and the reason why that's, I mentioned that as significant is everything I unpack with my therapist at the moment is about that duality. And so what we're really trying hard to do with M is first of all, to give her a great support structure. So M has an incredible pediatrician. I mean, she's, she's becoming a teenager soon, but she still goes to this incredible pediatrician who specializes in neurodiversity. And this is an incredible doctor who is on the spectrum herself and understands exactly where M is at and understands us and our journey. And M has an incredible therapist. So yes, that costs us money, but it's a worthwhile expense because to have her supported and for her to find words to describe her own experience and to have someone outside the family structure with none of the baggage of family to offload to once a week or once every two weeks or whatever it is, that's been really worthwhile. But then also to always encourage M to be authentic at home so there might be things that and i'm not necessarily going to share what but there might be things that other people would frown at that we are quite happy for m to say and express at home because we have said we want you to be your full true self here at home this must be a safe space and i don't know what impact that's going to have but from my own experience I have a sense that if I had the opportunity to live fully and wholly like that in the home environment, that there are a whole lot of struggles I currently have that I probably would not be dealing with at the moment. I want to, I want to thank you for this conversation and maybe there's a follow up at some time in the future, but just thank you for your time. And I'm just encouraged by what you shared and, yeah, I hope I hope this was a positive experience for you as well. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. And
the conversation. That's a wrap for this. Hope you've enjoyed this three-part episode. And again, thank you so much to Nina for your time, for your insights, uh, for your willingness to engage so authentically. Until next time, folk, peace out.